Greetings, and welcome to The Ace Case, where we make the case for the importance of addressing childhood trauma. Adverse childhood experiences have a ripple effect across society. Trauma is embedded in all of our lives, impacting our health and wellness in many ways. By having honest conversations with local community members, we hope to share stories and ideas surrounding health, wellness, resilience, and healing. Trauma is a current shaping all of our lives. If we attempt to better understand its impacts, we can become better equipped to answer what is possibly the most important question of all. How do we heal from trauma? In this podcast, we will be highlighting the work and perspectives of community members, have a few laughs, and enjoy a non-alcoholic beverage along the way. Wherever you are in your healing journey, this podcast is for you. Thank you to our talented, inspiring guests who volunteered their time to sit down for our conversation. Thank you to OVCDC and ACEs Aware for your continued support. I am your host, Luke Wilson. I'm a master's candidate in social work and am employed by the Owens Valley Career Development Center. This is the ACE case. Thank you for listening. So I have a guest today in the studio I'm really excited about. We've been trying to sit down for a while now and for a variety of reasons, just haven't been able to make it happen. COVID, life, all that stuff. Uh, but we got Earl Lent in the studio today. It finally happened. Um, Earl's someone I wanted to talk to for a long time. Earl is really involved in the community, specifically in the realm of wellness and recovery and well-briety, and just seems to have his hands in a lot of things and, and be um, involved in a lot of events. So Earl is someone I definitely thought of early on when I started this podcast. So thanks for being here, Earl. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, it's been a it's been a journey to get here, but you know, life during these crazy times throws you some loops, but I'm here and I'm happy to be here. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's it's been a pretty crazy last few months, uh, last few years, really. But yeah, I was wondering if you could kind of start uh, maybe just by giving a brief rundown of, of what your role is now and how you got to be there. For sure. Um, currently, my role is the prevention supervisor at Toyabian Health Project and also an SUD uh, counselor trainee. So I, I kind of have multiple roles you know, over at Toyabi. And I'm really fortunate to be in that position to uh, not only give back to my community, but really help in several different ways and try to improve upon, um, you know, wellness and people's personal recovery. And it's great to be doing what I'm doing. And it's a really gratifying job to be in because we see firsthand how recovery, wellness, and prevention change people's lives for the better. That's awesome. Yeah, big impacts. Um, and especially right now, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to just some of the trends you're seeing in the community and how they relate to COVID and, and people kind of being isolated, not having their same social supports they might typically have. Yeah, the the trends overall, I mean, they're, they're increased, you know, increased levels of anxiety, increased usage of substances, alcohol, opioid use, um, increased, you know, pretty much everything across the whole spectrum has uh, been increased. So our jobs are definitely taken you know, a big turn for an uptick in services and then also just trying to like stay up to date on all the new modalities and provide the best service and quality of care that we can. So definitely an uprise for sure. Yeah, you hate to see it. And I mean, I'd imagine that's tough because it's like the busier you are, the more people are suffering. And, and has the services that you're providing, ha has that been more difficult because of COVID? Like, are there more precautions you have to take when you're interacting with people and stuff like that? Yeah, there's more precautions and we've done our best to adapt, you know, with uh, online services, creating all of our intake forms, um, you know, online accessible, offering several different groups online, hybrid groups, just adapting everything, you know, to fit the needs of the community. So, you know, there, those are some positives that have come out of COVID, 
You know, yeah. you can pretty much join a recovery meeting any time of the day, 24-7, with just the touch of a button. From so, your couch? Yeah, from your couch. Yeah. And it also helps with, um, you know, some stigma related to people coming in to seek yeah. those services where now they can, you know, easy to, to you know, access uh, those type of services either. Yeah, that's an interesting thing you spoke to there, that uh, small community dynamic of like, you know, when you show up and you have to go to family services and you might see like your auntie and two of your friends and like, you know, you might run into 10 people, you know, just walking, walking into the building. So, yeah, um, you might just take a left and, you know, bust a U-turn and not even go through those doors because of that stigma that's associated with totally um, recovery and, you know, seeking help. So. Yeah. And that's something I'm hoping to talk about later. You know, just um, the stigma, like like suffering with those demons and, and grappling with addiction in general is so much to deal with. But then you pile the stigma on top of it. And um, yeah, just wondering, like, what advice you would give to someone right now who's maybe out there during the pandemic? They're they're battling addiction, but they're also dealing with stigma and they're also feeling like alone and, and cut off. Like what what might you say to that person right now? I would just let them know that asking for help isn't a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of courage. And, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that you are, um, you know, that that you're a weak person in any way. It just shows that you have strength and resiliency and Everybody at a time in their life, you know, is going through something and, uh, you know, a little extra helping hand goes a long way. So just remember that asking for help isn't weakness. It's actually a sign of courage and resiliency. So I really like that. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, not to get too much into the gender stuff, but I think specifically as men, you're kind of conditioned to be like, I need to be an island. I need to like be strong for other people in my life. I need to not show emotion. So I think that's an interesting one too. When people are kind of conditioned to like certain things, you're supposed to keep them bottled up. And sometimes when they're bottled up, that's when they come out in these, these unhealthy ways. So yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that there's like a bit of a cultural shift there, like just a shift in the way people look at it, that it's not, you know, you don't need to solve everything on your own type of thing. For sure. Um, yeah, that male bravado definitely has, you know, its own stigma attached as well. But um, I think culturally, too, you look at our people and how we reached out for help, you know, by seeking our medicine people and our spiritual leaders. Similar to that, you know, in combining those two is important as well. And that's something that we're doing at Toyabi is really emphasizing that culture and being able to uh, feel warm and welcome and just have that cohesive environment, you know, where you feel that like, wow, this actually feels good to come in here. And I'm really glad that I took that step to seek help. So yeah. that's what we're trying to create. And I feel we're doing that. So, you know, that's awesome, man. So huge. Yeah. And I'm, I'm excited to talk about some of the well variety stuff a little bit later on. And, you know, that was something in the little videos and materials I was kind of reading is like, you know, that's how a lot of this stuff came about was just like asking the elders for that wisdom and, and taking it back to that, I think is so huge. Like, you know, you don't have to have all the answers yourself. There's all this other wisdom out there. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited to get your perspective on some of that stuff. So I was wondering if we could start with some Gabor Mate stuff. Um, I've been really interested in some of his work. Uh, he comes from a medical background and he's a doctor. He practiced family medicine for several decades. And then he went over to, to Vancouver and kind of worked in the rough patch of Vancouver, uh, British Columbia. And it's just this huge epicenter of addiction. And he has some really interesting thoughts and ideas around addiction. And I was just hoping to run some of those ideas by you and get your reaction. And, you know, one of the things he does mention is the stigma and he says that people don't need judgment or symptom control. They need to heal from trauma because it is all about trauma. And he kind of goes on to rebuke the, the clinical and Western approach to addiction, 
where basically, you know, there's a, there's a specialist with a fancy degree and there's a patient or a client and it's like one person is the expert and one person is the person who has a disease and needs help. And he just kind of says that it's all about the wrong, like that essentially in dominant Western culture, we're going about addiction the complete wrong way. And we're looking at it as these individuals are making a moral failure. They're making a choice. Basically, they are um, failures. And he says it's actually has a lot more to do with childhood trauma specifically and people trying to essentially escape what they've been through and people not knowing how to take care of that emotional pain, people not knowing how to process that. And essentially what happens is just the desire to escape becomes so strong because you have those demons coming in all the time when you're sober. And then it's just this cycle. And he talks a lot about that cycle, about how, you know, you're shamed and you're outcast from society, you're getting thrown in jail. And that's just going to add more. It's just going to give more fuel to the fire and make you want to use more. And just he just talks about how this just keeps going and how there's uh, such a low success rate with um, a lot of Western treatment models. Um, so I just thought he had a really interesting take. So I'd, I'd be curious to get your reactions on some of the, the Gabor Mate stuff. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I feel that um, a lot of times the, you know, the answers that the person is seeking, they pretty much have the answers for themselves. So a lot of the stuff that uh, I personally believe in is like motivational interviewing. Mm. Um, you know, I have I have all the questions and you have the answers type of mentality and and you know serving as a resource and working together to find you know the areas that they are seeking questions for um, because you know we have the Western education but like you said a lot of it's underlying trauma. And I feel that, you know, a big piece of that is giving back to our ancestral ways of culture and finding those things that make us feel good, um, healthy ways to cope. Um, and culture is a big piece of that if you're able to reconnect with your culture. And that can be as simple as just getting outside and, you know, getting up in those mountains or, you know, mm. walking just starting small and, and working your way towards, you know, short term and then eventually kind of long term goals to adapting and changing behaviors, trying to find new ways to cope. Because I think a lot of substance use is just an escape or, or a coping mechanism of, like you said, underlying trauma and things that we experienced firsthand or even things that we didn't experience firsthand, you know, intergenerational trauma and the effects of that on our, on our native people. So, yeah, those those are some big things, and I, I believe that uh, Western medicine needs to take a look at that. And uh, you know, Wilbride is a big piece to doing that. So, yeah, man, so much to unpack in there. Um, can you speak a little bit more to that about like this idea of you know integrating bits and pieces of Western science with with traditional practices and how you've found success in that and you've seen that be successful in the community um, and just, just what that can look like? Yeah, I, I think um, what that looks like is just integrating, you know, our culture with, you know, the 12 steps models, um, with the smart recovery models and intertwining the two. So what it can look like is it, it can just look simple, you know, um, smudging, creating an altar when we have our talk, you know, sitting down in a circle, not linear fashion, like classroom seating. No that, hierarchy. No hierarchy. That, that circle is so powerful because everyone's shoulder to shoulder equal. Um, there's no hierarchy. There's no one person that's sitting there um, lecturing. It's, it's stories coming firsthand from, you know, the people that have been there and done that. They're able to share, they're able to show respect, they're able to be humble. Like all these things are our teachings traditionally. So if you intertwine that with, you know, Western teachings and I think it has so much more impact and it it um has that relatability piece and you know, um I think that's the key to a lot of uh healing for our for our native people. Awesome. 
And so my, my understanding, and, and you can definitely call me out if I'm wrong here, is that um, like Don Coyus and the White Bison stuff, that's kind of, it started with like Plains Tribes. Like he's from Colorado or something, right? Uh, I think he's he's from New York, I, I believe. Oh, really? he's, an, he's from East Coast Tribe. But oh, okay. yeah, his, his foundation is in Colorado. That's kind of their hub. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. And the movement, you know, kind of yeah. spread from there. Um, but... Yeah, it was it. The whole concept was to put the twelve steps of AA and NA into a circular concept instead yeah. of linear. Yeah. So he he combined the two. He went to the elders and and talked to them about his vision and, um, you know, went about in a good way and he was able to take those two and put them together. So the twelve steps are in a circle, um, and. You know, the medicine will teachings are all intertwined in those 12 steps. So it's adapted to our native culture in that way. Yeah. And c- can you speak to maybe how you've adapted that specifically to here, to, to Paiute people? Uh. Yeah. So, and that's that's the main way he, he wanted Wellbride to work is that culturally, he, you know, all of our tribes are different. We all have our different, you know things that make us who we are specifically to our our area so some ways that we've adapted um is just bringing in our cultural leaders our spiritual leaders to talk um to share some of our knowledge um add our medicines in that are specific to our area add some of our customs our gatherings our ceremonies and uh you know, combine it with the well variety modality. So that's kind of how we went about it. That's awesome, man. Um, something I, I also wanted to run by you that I thought was interesting that I learned when I was kind of prepping for this was um, one of Dr. Mate's theories where he's talking about how basically how human children have two fundamental needs, and it's that they have the need for attachment and the need for authenticity. And basically there's a lot of stuff about attachment and it's like your relationship to your caregivers when you're a young child, particularly zero to five, you know, like if you're upset, does someone respond to you? Or like, is there someone who's there watching out for your safety? That type of thing really affects your relationships. As you get older, it's kind of like the architectural blueprint for your relationships when you become an adult. And the other one is authenticity. You know, does my community accept me for who I am? Um, Am I allowed to be myself? What is the reaction when I get to be myself? And he said those are the two most important things. But sometimes what will happen in a setting is they'll actually conflict with each other. Because it's like, if I'm being authentic, sometimes that's actually going to get a negative response from my caregivers. So that's going to basically send me the message that I shouldn't be authentic, that I need to hide who I am. And the other thing he said that I thought was really interesting is that um, using drugs, and he specifically gave the example of opiates, he said that that is like a synthetic way essentially to replace attachment. That like they've done research and essentially the way your body reacts to like taking heroin or something is is almost the same way that your body reacts to like a mother's love or something like that. So I thought that was really fascinating is that like a lot of times people are, it's literally the closest thing you can get to fill in that void of what is like coming from a broken home. So yeah, wondering if you had any thoughts on, on that theory. For sure. I, I, I believe in that theory. I think, um, that makes sense. And you often hear people describe, you know, the euphoria of heroin or opioids that it's like being in your mother's womb. You know, you're completely just warm and secure and, you know, that's that's filling that void. And a lot of that um, comes from that, you know, not being able to establish secure attachment for sure. Um, and then the other piece, acceptance, is another huge piece. Um, and uh, I think ways that we can look at that is, is, you know, honoring our people that come back from treatment, come back from incarceration, and, um, you know, honoring them and letting them know that they're accepted here and back in their community. This is their home, 
and um, welcome them with uh, loving arms because acceptance is huge. Um, you know, those are two things that I think we're all earning for is, is security and, and acceptance. No doubt. And you touched on something there I was really curious to get your perspective on too. You know, the justice system and the, the prison industrial complex and, um, you know, this cycle, like I was talking to one of my friends who's in recovery the other day and she was just talking about, you know, she's been to jail. Everyone she knew from her, her previous life as an addict had, had been kind of in and out of jail. And she was just like, yeah, you just, it's so hard to get out of that addict brain of you're just hustling all the time. You're just hustling and it, and it doesn't stop. You're always have a new scheme um, and it doesn't matter who you burn. And, you know, just, just talking about the prison industrial complex and, and, you know, per capita as a nation, we have the highest prison population in the world. That's disproportionate to natives. That's disproportionate to black people and Latinx people. And just wondering kind of what your thoughts are on maybe what some alternatives to the justice system could be instead of, you know, locking up these people for nonviolent drug offenses. They get more trauma um, in that process and then they just get out and, and they keep using and just kind of this wheel keeps spinning. Yeah, I think the... The justice system des definitely has its issues, and there there needs to be reform. And I think there is starting to um, be some alternate solutions to that. Um, juvenile Healing and Wellness Court here in the Bishop Tribe, that's a huge one that I'm currently involved with, and I'm seeing amazing things come out of that. You know, it's an alternative to uh, the county system, so it's yeah. more of a— tribal-based program that really wraps, you know, multiple services around people that otherwise would have kind of been lost in the system, specifically juveniles. Yeah. So they're able to um, really emphasize that cultural element. Really cool. And, um, and then also intertwine all these different agencies to wrap around services, you know, otherwise they would have, you know, been lost in the system and uh, not been able to have that culturally specific treatment you know going through the court system which is which huge. is huge so yeah that's something i've heard that like you know in western courts you can't be in the you can't be in the courtroom if you know the person who's being charged or whatever and you know in, in certain native justice systems it's like the person who's having the judgment needs to know the person who's in there because it's you know, it's that idea of like relationality and, and connection and community. And man, that, that program just sounds so great. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about the kids you see in that program and kind of like, what are some themes you see or like, what are these kids dealing with? What aren't they getting that they, they need? Well, I think the first big one is just trauma. They've experienced, you know, early age trauma and it's really hard to come out of that especially, um, you know, if you've lost a, a family member, a parent, or you've been raised in, you know, by your grandma, your auntie, things along those lines, it's, it's tough because you are earning for that secure attachment. You've witnessed things at a young age that have um, altered your, your perceptive on a lot of things. So being able to kind of get back to that cultural piece the acceptance, you know, you're resilient, you're proud, you're a bishop tribal member, you're NUMU. Um, so it's been great. You know, there, there's a language component to that program too. The language department's working those kids. They have the Ed Center. They have uh, Toyabi, Bishop Social Services, all these things um, to help them, you know, build upon not only their, their life skills, their social skills, but also just to show them that they're uh, accepted here and to be proud from just uh, the culture behind our community and how uh, important that is. So, Awesome. You know, I was, I was having a good conversation with one of the Native liaisons the other day at the school, and, you know, there's obviously been some tragedies in the community lately that are heavy on the mind, and you know, one of the things that we talked about was like, hey, this ACEs science, it's, it's important and everybody I think needs to know. 
the impacts that trauma has on health and wellness across a lifetime. And I know for me, it's been kind of a revelation. And that's my favorite part when this part clicks for people is like, oh, maybe I'm that way because of what I went through. And like, maybe addressing this stuff might be really important. It might be why I need to like drink a lot before I go to bed at night or why I do X, Y, and Z, you know? And um, we were just talking about that too. We're like, what do the kids in this community have to actually process their trauma? Like what outlets are out there, you know, for these kids to deal with what they're going through? Because a lot of them are going through some pretty real stuff. And, um, you know, that, that was a conversation we had is like, it's not enough to just be like, here's the problem. And we were talking about like, what are, what are real solutions we can give these kids other than like, you should start meditating or, or whatever, you know? So, um, there's obviously your program you've mentioned, but I, yeah, just curious on thoughts of resources available to the youth that can really help them get through, um, help them address some of their trauma and help them, help them heal. Yeah, my program for sure. Um, every Friday, three o'clock, use well variety. You can jump on the computer, log on, or you can come in in person. That's a huge one right there, right off the bat. Um, other peer support groups that are out there. Um, I really feel that when the kids are able to talk amongst each other uh, and build a support system that way, you know, it's huge. They're able to trust one another and they're able to kind of build their own support services. So I'm all for, you know, peer support groups, um, coalition groups through the high school, through the county, um, utilizing your liaisons as a resource, definitely. And I think just knowing your resources and being able to uh, utilize them because we have a lot of, you know, really good resources and tools here for the youth. If they're able to um, take advantage of those, it, it really will help. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me think of that idea of like risk factors and protective factors and you know, I mean, there's a lot of risk factors and I, I think there is in every community, but definitely in this community, you know, it's like what you're competing with is like social media, Instagram, TikTok, you're competing with drug dealers, you're competing with vaping, you're competing with Xbox, like all these things that, you know, are really powerful and probably have a better advertising campaign and budget than um, all these other protective factors. And you know, one of the things you hit earlier is just that um, kids out here have such great access to nature. And that's something I'm really interested in is, is trying to help more kids get outside because it's, it's not always easy to get the gear and the transportation. But man, like it's just there's there's so many little traps and pitfalls uh, youth these days can fall into. And I, I really hope that we can continue to offer them good alternatives to those things. Um and it's interesting, I feel like sometimes I'll, I'll talk to people and they'll say like, you know, like, oh, music saved my life or like sports helped me stay off the streets or whatever. And I feel like for a long time I was kind of like, oh, that's probably like an exaggeration. Like, but I feel like that stuff is real. So I don't know. I'm, I'm just very interested in, um, yeah, like getting the arts programs and hopefully we can get open gym back up and running and get people playing basketball again because I do feel like that stuff really does help people um not get as caught up in those traps for sure i think we're all feeling that you know this we want to get out and do stuff with this you know covid epidemic it's like everyone kind of resorted back to you know being in their house you know anxiety levels are running high oh, there's no more open gym um some of the events that ovcdc and toyavi and all the community agencies kind of pulled back on those. So I definitely feel you on that. And um, yeah, just trying to come up with alternative ways to, to keep the kids engaged. Um, because like you said, the, those are some powerful tools out there. So we have to, you know, figure out ways to utilize them in a good way. So promoting, you know, positive social media sites, Toyabi app, um, yeah. We are native, doing some really positive social media, you know, with the youth, getting them involved, empowering them in that way. Because, yeah, these cell phones are here to stay. They're not going to go anywhere. Um, so if we give them some alternatives to uh, 
some of the negative things that they see on social media yeah then we're giving the power back to the youth to uh yeah so you know you know i can click over here and it's yeah. it's positive it's fun it's yeah. cool and you know i get good things out of it instead of uh some of the negative stuff that flows through social media for real yeah shout out uh you all did a great job with the toyabi app by the way thank you so it's still a work in progress we're still um we're still plugging away to make it better um there's always a lot of trial and error when you come out with a new app and things along those lines you, you constantly see like oh this can be improved and we need to do this but yeah. um yeah, we're we're trying, and we just wanted to get it out there so bad that yeah, it was came down to just making that decision. Okay, we need to put this thing out there, yeah. and then just make adjustments as we go yeah. at this point. So at a certain point, you can tinker with it forever. But yeah, shout out you, shout out Heather. That thing turned out yeah, awesome. big time. Shout out to Heather and um, everyone who was involved in that one. It was a big undertaking. Language program. All those guys put in immense hours to get that cultural tab out there and we have some really cool things coming up with the app too we're trying to do a, a you know a library or an archive on traditional medicine put a video out on how to work with those traditional medicines how to gather um, and just kind of really beef up the cultural tab on the app because we're, we're really trying to promote that cultural piece to healing and the western modalities combine the two so that's another project that's underway really cool yeah stay tuned for that and you know that's something you mentioned a few times i feel like the the culture is medicine piece and um i think you know there's science behind that but there's also like obviously just seeing the way it, it positively impacts people and yeah I, I think that's so cool like just just integrating that and you know, I, maybe there's a bit of a left turn, but I, I'm curious, you know, just some stuff has, has surfaced in the news, like all the, the stuff with the boarding schools in Canada. And I know from a lot of my conversations with people in this community, um, you know, the boarding schools was, was a reality here too. And um, a lot of people in that older generation um, essentially, you know, got cut off from their culture. And you know, we're forced to endure some pretty terrible things. And, and then that then impacted the next generation in terms of the language and culture that was passed on to them. And um, just curious about your thoughts related to the transference of intergenerational trauma, but also how um, people like yourself and other people in the community are really making a move to um, bring that back. And, and, you know, shout out to the language department here too, as well. Just like, yeah, like the, the movement to kind of bring that stuff back and what that's doing for people. Yeah, the movement's real. So, you know, first off is just acknowledging that this atrocity has happened and looking at that for what it is, you know, systematic, you know, means to destroy a, a people, you know, to break down the culture, attack, you know, everything that is, you know, our core, our core values, basically, you know. So whether you realize it or not, being a native human being is, you know, we have these intergenerational traumas, whether you, you understand it or not, it's there because what had happened to, you know, our grandma and grandpas or even our moms and dads affects us in the way that they rear us as kids, you know? So sure. that's like the first hand, you know, experience that that we're going to get and then there's all that intergenerational like epigenetic type stuff too yeah. that goes into intergenerational trauma so there's a lot there i mean whether you realize it or want to acknowledge it um we're affected by it in some way or another so the movement of first acknowledging it and um really delving into like what that looked like in in my personal life it was like my grandmother and my grandfather met at Sherman Indian School. Wow. And um, that's kind of how, like, I yeah. came to be, right? Yeah. So, and it was, like, one of the things that was never talked about by my grandfather was, like, boarding school and, yeah. and the war. Yeah. He, he just, like, would shy away from it. He yeah. Would, he, if you brought it up, it was just, like, yeah. he wouldn't even respond to you. So yeah. everyone just, like, wouldn't even talk about it. Mm-hmm. 
So you got to imagine the trauma behind that if it's so severe that you don't even speak about it. <clears throat> and then we, you know, we grew up with it firsthand. We can see, like, you know, the effects of him not speaking his language out, you know, openly because it's a yeah. direct relation to the boarding schools. Of yeah. You spoke out in your native tongue, you're punished. Yeah. So this this trickles down and it carries on until, you know, people start to recognize it and start to change and bring back that culture and the language and um, start to teach it to their, to their kids and um, revitalize it. No doubt. Yeah, man. And, and I think what you just talked about really ties into that whole healing forest concept of like, you know, that's the roots are growing in that soil and, and that this there's this cycle of trauma that's in motion um, that's been trickling down for generations and, and that all these things are, um, are a symptom, you know, addiction, suicide, all these, these negative outcomes have to do with that and are tied into that. And they all kind of spring from that, um, that issue. And that it seems like a lot of well-brighted curriculum is about breaking that cycle. Um, and yeah, just thoughts on the, the model of the healing forest and sort of, I, I just really like that analogy of like, the, yeah, the forest is, I'm a visual person, so it does make sense to me, I guess. Yeah, I'm a visual person too. A lot of these theories or ideas are really abstract. <laughs> for sure. So it makes it easier for me to understand too, if I can look at a picture and see how like this theory works, you know, visually. So the healing forest model is, is essentially that. It um, stems from, you know, forced assimilation and, and colonization that uh, when our people were colonized, you know, essentially, you know, the genocide that, that occurred, what had happened is systematically they knew um, how to break a people down, you know, and that was to attack the culture. And uh, at the base of the healing forests are roots, and from those roots are what sprout our trees. So. If those roots are damaged and those roots are poisoned, then what's going to happen is we're going to sprout unhealthy trees. And then from those trees, our seeds come off of and they, you know, lead to more sick trees, unhealthy trees. So, you know, the base of our root system where our core values, you know, our language, our, our wisdom, our teachings. And uh, if you take those away and you replace those things with uh, all that trauma that comes with them, you know, the anger, guilt, and shame, we're going to have unhealthy trees. Yeah, man. I I think that the shame piece is something, and kind of to circle back to something we we mentioned earlier, is like the stigma and shame on top of addiction and how um, this is something for a lot of people that happens in the dark, that they hide. and sometimes I wonder about that, like people who are actually more effective addicts at hiding it, they, they use for longer because they, they find all these strategies to kind of adapt to that lifestyle. And yeah, wondering like just in general, what are, what are some ways to kind of combat that, like the, the stigma around drug users? And I know society does that a lot, right? Like this is such a common thing. There's so many metrics, especially with the opioid epidemic that uh, addiction is very, very common, but at the same time, people who are experiencing it can kind of be ostracized and, and feel like that for some reason, you know, they feel alone, even though they're actually a part of this thing that's really big. Um, so just just wondering about ideas about how to break break down that stigma, how to be able to talk to people maybe who are, who are going through something like that. Yeah, the stigma is huge. And um, I think it's recognizing addiction for what it is. It's a disease and it's a shame-based disease that affects your, your whole spirit. Mm. So looking at ways to communicate with those that are suffering from addiction is, is, is a, definitely a big concept to tackle. Trying to just attack that stigma, you know, like let people know that this is a disease similar to diabetes, you know, mm. and our people are suffering from this and plaguing, you know, it plagues us. So we need to open those doors and recognize it for what it is. You know, it's a disease that deserves, you know, the best quality of care and treatment options. 
and um, provide that service for our people in a good way and not associate that stigma that comes with it that, you know, you're a bad person and, you know, you're ostracized from society. So I, I think outreach, getting the word out there and just letting people know that, like, we honor you, we welcome you, we need you here. Um, build those warm environments around people that are suffering from substance use, alcoholism, whatever it may be, and let them know that we're here and we stand up for uh, for them and everything that comes with it. So I guess it's just building those environments. Awesome. And, and like, what would you say, because I feel like for people who don't struggle with addiction, it's really hard to understand it and they have all these kind of um, there's these myths or these logical fallacies that like this person is choosing to ruin their lives or hurt their family or whatever. And, you know, a good mentor of mine once told me like, people don't wake up and say, I want to ruin my life today. You know, like it's, it's just something that happens as a byproduct of all these other things. And, you know, what would you say to someone who just like, you feel like they don't get it? What do you, what do you think a lot of people miss when it comes to this stuff? I think they miss the trauma piece. It's like, you know, and then they feel that, you know, oh, I've gone through trauma in my life, but I never picked up a drink or, or you know, a drug. And then I, I just relate to them that there's things out there that we all don't understand about each other. And there's predisposition, there's genetics involved, and there's also a lot of different things like intergenerational trauma, like colonization, all these all these things that like contribute to the factors of addiction and uh yeah like you said the early childhood trauma like these are all things that are real that contribute and their symptoms to that so we just have to recognize that as um addiction being a disease and and really being a symptom of like a lot of this adversity that uh not just native people have faced but everyone in life, you know, that has gone through some severe trauma and we all cope in different ways. And uh, I feel for, you know, people that are, uh, have those thoughts that like, you know, there's, there's got to be accountability, right? And I think that's true. But there also has to be a responsibility for community and for our people that are sick. So I just uh, recognize it for a disease. And um, whether or not you came down with that disease, Life isn't fair, right? Uh-uh. Yeah, life isn't fair because, mm -hmm. I mean, the Sackler family is just paying a fine for dealing opioids to the whole country while the addicts are out there, you know, yeah. dying and splitting families up. Yeah, I totally feel you. And we all come from different places, and we all have our, our own issues. Whether or not you decided to take a drink or pop a pill, that, that could be the the choice that uh, kept you from going down that path. So prevention, huge. Like if we can huge. get you into some positive stuff from your young age and show you that like there's a red road um, and you, you get on that path early, you know it's there. Unfortunately, some of our youth here, they don't even know that road exists, right? If you grow up in something that's totally the opposite of healthy, what do you know? You don't, you don't, right? So these programs, honestly, are what saved me. Huge. Like growing up, you know, getting involved in some of these programs allowed me to see that, like, well, like, I like this life over here. Yeah. Better than yeah. <laughs> this life in my house. So yeah, I'm going to go down this road and see yeah. where it takes me. But I if you don't have that option, you don't, you're just kind of stuck where you're at. For real. I think that's so interesting. And I think it almost ties to the stigma piece of, like, I felt like a lot of the adults in my life weren't being honest with me about drugs when I was growing up, you know? And I think it might have been really helpful to talk to someone who was able to get over that stigma and had been through their own recovery journey to be, like, real honest, you know? And I think unless you hear those stories and unless people are breaking down that stigma and talking about this stuff openly, like you said, you might not even know that that's, that's out there. Like, a lot of these struggles happen so much in private that, um, yeah, I wonder... Yeah, just, just how that, that stigma or like even just seeing one success story might help some of these kids. For sure. Sharing the success stories is huge. And if we have, you know, we can build role models and community champions yeah. 
and showcase them and highlight, you know, where they've come from and how they've gotten to where they're at and how they're successful. And I always tell people that, like, the journey is, you know, that's where it's at. Yeah. And if you're able to share that journey and if you're able to go to the deepest, darkest places in your life and then come out of that, like, just think how close you are to, like, that wisdom, you know. You understand that and you're uh, you're a different person because of it. So if you can share that and let the youth know where you've come from, it, it really resonates. And it's it's really powerful to see because the youth are so engaged when they do hear those stories. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's like dead silence when someone's speaking the truth about, you know, drugs or alcohol or where they've been, if they've, you know, been incarcerated or if they've, like, experienced an overdose. Like, to tell that story, it just, it's like dead silence in the room because everyone's, like, listening. Yeah, I think that's so admirable. And I think the real human stories um, make all that stuff more real rather than just kind of talking about this stuff in, in big terms and storytelling to me is is such an important part of just healing or learning in general like when i hear someone speak from the heart you know you can tell when someone's and i think kids these days have a great radar for bs you know they know when people are being real with them or not and i think hearing those stories is is huge i think i just had a couple more questions for you if that's cool and then maybe we could close with a few minutes of lakers for sure cool (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i was just wondering um Sometimes I get to go to your coalition meetings and sometimes I get to interact with other people at Family Services, Heather, um, you know, and, and just in general, just want to show huge appreciation to everything y'all are doing out there. Huge steps being taken, big strides. Um, but just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the MAT stuff and the Narcan stuff. I know that that's um, a program that's really blossomed over the last few years. And um, yeah, I was wondering if you could just give that and give a little rundown on that and, and some of the stuff y'all are doing these days. Yeah, so so the MAT program at Toyabi is is really an amazing program. It's a medically assisted treatment. And it's a program that focuses on combining, um, you know, medication with uh, psychotherapy, um, SED programming, um, well variety, all these different modalities um, and wrapping around the patient um, while providing that medication to treatment. It's really big with opiates because opiates take such a toll on your your uh, endorphins and your overall ability to you know produce you know healthy endorphins and you know so having that medical, treatment option is huge and just stabilizing a person otherwise they would be so sick that they don't want to get out of bed so their only option is to go see yeah. more opiates yeah so it's huge in that and not only that it's huge in that it prevents overdose because the medication has that naloxone in it combined oh great so not only does it stabilize um it's not going to allow a person to get to the levels of, of overdose while they're on the medication. Great. And then they have that, you know, firsthand doctor yeah. on call to, yeah. to really monitor them and give them that service that they need to just make sure that they're healthy and being taken care of. And can you talk about, like, just having, you know, you've been in your role for a little while, right? Um, and you were in your role previous to the program being implemented. So... What has been the contrast for like before MAT and after MAT in terms of um, opioid users? Well, I think it, it's shifted, you know, not only at the clinic, but I think nationally. Cool. So, you know, before it was more, you know, give more opioids, um, try to taper down in that fashion. But now it's more of looking at like the long term. Yeah. Like this medication can be used in in long-term treatment and you know some people may need this medicine for the duration of their life yeah and it's not a bad thing yeah you know and other people may able may be able to taper off may may be able to um eventually get to the point where they're you know abstaining but um it's similar to diabetes you know a person who is suffering from diabetes type 2 diabetes they could eventually be in remission and, you know, not have to take any meds anymore because they've changed their lifestyle, essentially, the way they eat, the way they exercise, similar to MAT. 
you know, if a person decides um, that's the route for them and they're able to eventually be completely abstinence from the medication, yeah. they can go that route. But that doesn't mean that it's a bad thing if you don't and you continue to stay on your medication. You're going to have a good life. You're going to be stable. Your family is going to see all the benefits from that, you know. Just that alone is huge that a person isn't out seeking, you know, illicit street drugs. Yeah. Um, they're home. They know where they're at. They're not worried. Like, all, you know, there's so much that comes in into play with the stigma piece with, again with, with stabilization and, and yeah. having, you know, a functioning mom or dad or auntie or uncle, grandma, For whoever sure. it may be, right? For sure. You ever think about that with like this and the Narcan stuff where you're like, I, I'm literally saving someone's life with this? Yeah, I do. I, I definitely think of that, you know. I always tell our little team that, you know, we're out saving lives today for yeah. sure. And the Narcan. No exaggeration. Like, literally. No exaggeration. The Narcan's the frontline defense to, to um, overdose. If you're not familiar with Narcan or if you need Narcan, come by Toyabi. We can explain everything about it, give you some. And, yeah, it's saving people's lives for sure. Pretty user-friendly, life-saving drug to prevent overdoses. Super user-friendly. It's just a, a nasal spray, and, um, yeah, it, it saves people's lives. Big shout-out to the Narcan program and the MAT program. Well, shoot, um, I won't take up any more of your time. Uh, but, yeah, man, just so much appreciation for you coming out today, sharing. Um, thanks for all the work you're doing right now. Some really great programs happening in the community. Uh, please check out the Toyabi app. Check out the Well Variety Groups on Friday. Um, Earl Lent, thanks so much for stopping by the booth, man. You're welcome. Anytime. Thank you to OVCDC and Aces Aware for your continued support. Big shout out to Grayson Gorse for providing the original music you heard during the introduction. You can find his tracks wherever you get your music. Thank you to our amazing, talented guests, who volunteer some of their precious free time to sit down for a conversation. If you'd like to reach out or have questions about the show, please email lwilson at ovcdc.com. Thank you for listening and happy healing. <laughs>